being the worst, episode 18, recorded Sunday, October 28th, but edited December 20th, 2012. From beingtheworst.com, it's the Being the Worst podcast. Audio apprenticeships for the aspiring software craftsman. With your hosts, Carrie Street and Renat Abdullah. In this episode, Carrie and Renat dig into some of the development tools and practices used at LOCAD. They specifically discuss distributed version control systems with a focus on Git's familiar design and our usage of it. And now, here are Carrie and Renat. Hey guys, welcome back to Being the Worst Podcast. This is Carrie, and I'm here with Renat. Hey, Renat. Is this thing on? Oh, yeah. Good from- <laughs> yes, it is on. What did you say? You said what? Good good evening from Ufa? Yes. Uh, yes, it is on and recording. Uh, I guess in this episode, we're going to be diving into development tools and how they relate to some of the concepts we've been learning uh, so far and also how to use them and some of the best practices or at least things that you guys do in LOCAD internally and in your public projects to use those tools uh, most effectively, right? Yes, exactly. Cool. Uh, in this episode, we'll be talking about Git, which is a distributed version control system. Uh, and it is relevant to the things that we were discussing previously for a number of reasons. Uh, first of all, Git is where being the worst source always samples, and uh, that's also the system for which LOCAD does collaboration and distributed development of its projects. Second, internal structure of Git is extremely similar to how events streams and event, event sourcing works. So understanding it will help to gain better insight into core basics of event sourcing with regards to merging and conflict resolution. Mm-hmm. Uh, and third, Git is also the way you make sure that your, uh, for example, application services with event sourcing code uh, and all these freshly written specifications, they stay intact and they don't get broken by a random commit. Because uh, Git or any other version control tool is the means by which we, first of all, distribute our code, and second, by which we pass the code to the continuous build server, which continuously runs every change, every iteration of our code change, and makes sure that every single of that changes passes the unit tests or fails, and if it fails, it provides feedback. Cool. Okay, so once again, Git is a distributed version control system, which basically helps you to keep an entire change log of a single folder or working copy. And uh, there are lots of different version control systems out there. For example, uh, TFS, CSV, SVN, Mercurial, Bazaar, etc., etc. And Git is probably one of the most hacky of them all because it was introduced by Linus Torvalds and is, it is currently used to keep the entire history of Linux kernel from the very beginning, yeah, as well as many other projects. Mm-hmm. Uh, this example that Git is used to keep the entire history of Linux kernel should provide you with some ideas of uh, how scalable it is towards the size of the repository, history of the repository, and also number of people that are participating in the project. Yep. And one of the biggest advantages of Git and its peculiarities that it keeps the entire history of changes, just like event sourcing. Uh, and every working copy is uh, an entire repository. So, for example, if you dare to 
clone a Git repository of Linux kernel, you'll get the entire history of Linux kernel, <laughs> starting from the very beginning. So uh, that should be quite fun for your hard drive. <laughs> yeah. Is it huge? Well, I never tried, but <laughs> I assume that it's yes. hundreds, of, hundreds of megabytes. Right. And despite that, uh, Git it would still be pretty efficient in processing this, as far as I know. Mm-hmm. And in such setups, Git usually has, like, well, when you have one server and multiple clients, in the simplest approach, we have one single server which hosts Git repository. And it is considered to be our single source of truth. It contains the history of changes. And then there are multiple clients, probably developers, each where each has his own working copy, which represents like his own uh, change set, and also an entire history of changes before that. And this is quite similar to how we're working with event streams and event sourcing, where we have global event store on the server, which is the source of truth. And then we have our uh, own copies of event stream inside an application service when it kind of checks out the event store and maintains a local in-memory copy. Mm -hmm. And just like how it is with uh, the development, sometimes developer, when he clones the copy and starts working uh, on a single commit, he might find out that somebody else changed the files or some files within the project concurrently. And then he will not be able to commit to the server unless he resolves the changes. Either he finds that there should be a merge or there's actually no merge, like no need to do manual merge, and he basically can just commit. Absolutely the same happens when we do event sourcing. If our event stream has changed while we're trying to commit it to the event store, most of the event stores, they will deny you from the commit saying, hey, version has changed. Mm-hmm. And in the application service code, we can write the code that will detect such conflicts and it will attempt automatic merge resolution. And one of the benefits of Git when compared potentially to other version control systems is that Git has almost magical merge resolution. <laughs> Basically, it manages to detect a lot of uh, potentially conflicting changes, but as long as they affect different lines in the same file or even uh, different files, then Git will try to resolve them automatically. When we get back to the business side of code, uh, when we're dealing with event streams, these are just like histories on the Git. And we can write almost exactly the same automatic merge resolution, which will be domain aware and which, in which we'll be able to state that certain changes, they don't conflict, certain changes conflict, and the non-conflicting changes can be resolved and uh, pushed to the server automatically. Conflicting, truly conflicting changes can be uh, presented back to the user saying, hey, these are the conflicts, Please, uh, like somebody else changed uh, this customer description or somebody else promoted or demoted customer. Please, what do you want to do? Do you want to override server changes or do you want to cancel your own changes? Mm-hmm. Uh, this is particularly uh, useful in uh, while developing occasionally connected systems. We will dive into the details of writing conflict resolution code a bit later in this podcast. However, like right now, just a quick hint that this conflict resolution will be uh, code will generally be put into the application service logic, the same application services that host aggregates with event sourcing. Okay. And in short, this looks like a try catch statement. 
around our update statement, which will catch a concurrency exception, which will be thrown by event store uh, detecting like attempt to save in incorrect version of event stream. And there we'll load changes from the event store and manually compare uh, changed events on our side and changed events on the server side, and then like make a decision if we override the changes, push the changes, or bubble the error all the way back to the customer. I mean, mm -hmm. sorry, to the client. Okay. Okay. So getting back to the Git as distributed version control system. So it was uh, introduced by Linux Trolls, and it is used by Linux community. And as you can guess, it is a huge hack. What we know as a Git is actually a combination of scripts and shell utilities, which are coded in completely different languages. I think there are C++, there are some bash scripts, uh, there are some Python scripts maybe. Hmm. And this collection of hacks, it operates on a set of files and concepts. Hmm. So basically, it's a set of code that helps to operate object database. Git is an object database. Okay. And this object database, uh, it's bases on four core concepts. And that's actually the difference between Git and any other simpler version control system. In Git, you really need to know uh, the basics in order to be efficient and in order to not to make mess. With simpler version control systems like Mercurial Subversion, you are not required to be aware of the core principles. You don't need to know the internals and you use just the common things. However, in my own experience, I found Git to be more flexible and more useful after you get through the initial learning curve. In the beginning, it was completely frustrating. But in the long run, it was worth it. Yeah, that was my experience too. It was only about maybe a year ago that I even tried to start messing with it. And before GitHub for Windows came out with an easy install, if you wanted to get into it on a window, on the Windows side of things, it wasn't overly Windows friendly. So you had to, you know, which one of these MSYS Git things do I install and what settings are the right things to pick and all that kind of stuff. But even after spending the time personally learning that and getting it set up the way people recommended, you got used to that bash shell script and started really appreciating it. It probably took me about two weeks to go from frustrating to like, oh, this is really cool. And actually, I used to love and use graphical user interface for Git. Mm -hmm. And recently, I almost never use it. Like mm -hmm. Git bash for viewing changes, for picking the changes to commit, for doing rebase, for doing interactive rebase, for writing commit code, et cetera, et cetera. So it's 95, 90%, it's pure command line. Yeah, and I think as you start to understand more of those concepts and have to actually do more complex multi-user things, I could see where you'd want to go back to the command line. But for, at least in my current experience, I haven't used it in a tremendous amount. But with GitHub for Windows, as a single developer, just putting stuff into my own repository and just wanting to keep my local changes organized and push them up to my local GitHub repository. The graphical user interface client's been able to do almost everything except for when I'm doing my homework, I have to use the the command line, the PowerShell one in this case, to fetch the upstream updates from the official being the worst samples, pull them in my homework, and you know make sure I have the latest copy before I continue to do my homework. So there's those things where you're always having to switch, kind of like going from Metro, uh, Windows 8 Metro to uh, the desktop mode, you have to switch context to get the probably the more complex things or at least 
the more detailed things that aren't just a push button away. So you've probably just found way more scenarios where eh, it's just easier to stay in the command prompt. <laughs> so. Don't remind me about the metro stuff. Okay, so in the world of Git, there are four core concepts or value objects, if you want to call them so, that compose all Git operations. So uh, Git deals with either blobs. Uh, basically, blob in Git world is just a chunk of data which can be identified by its uh, SHA-1 hash. In other words, if you have 10 megabyte file, it will be stored as a 10 megabyte file, which is uh, identified by SHA-1 hash. Mm-hmm. That actually creates one of the powerful features of Git. If you have multiple duplicate DLL libraries, for example, in different versions, or even in uh, the same version but in different locations, then these DLL files or other resources, they will not be duplicated because they're stored by their uh, SHA-1 hash. I think that's content-based addressing. Is a blob, from Git's perspective, different than how it handles binary files like images, or is that the same thing? Well, uh, Git treats any file as binary. Oh, even text, okay. Yeah, well, then you can say that when you're doing GIF, uh, diffs or merges, then the specific files will be treated as text. Hmm. However, at the lowest level, every file is a blob. Okay. Uh, well, at least as far as I know. Uh, <laughs> the second object, uh, is a tree. It's basically just a list of directory, which can uh, consist of links to other objects, metadata, other trees, or blobs. And trees are identified by their hash as well. Okay. So basically, you can represent a single directory with all the subdirectories and files within them as a tree, which contains links to other trees and other blobs. Okay. And actually using low-level git commands, you can construct this tree manually. And a lot of people, well, not a lot of people, but multiple people I'm aware of, were actually using git as an object database to persist trees of files or uh, trees of settings or trees of uh, business objects. That's weird, but it happens. Yeah. Uh, Then the third notion, in addition to blobs and trees, are commits. A commit is an object which describes a single unit of change in Git history. And it includes additional metadata like uh, author, parent commits, uh, command, and also a reference of tree object, which represents state of the working copy at that point in history. Mm-hmm. Uh, so basically, commits in Git's universe, they create directed graph. And basically, uh, when you start from a single commit, you can go all the way back into the history to the very beginning of this working copy. Hmm. And all operations in Git, they're just operations with these graphs. You can uh, start new branches on the graphs, and branch is just a pointer. You can merge graphs, you can rebase graphs, you can split graphs, etc., etc. And a graph in Git universe... Uh, at least a sequential uh, line in that graph is an equivalent of event store. Uh, oh, sorry, of an event stream. And when you're thinking about Git operations, how they happen, how you merge data, how you potentially find conflicts, which showed up because of the decoupled nature of these uh, distributed version control systems, let's keep in mind that actually the same concepts they will apply to how you deal with event streams in the distributed environment as well. If there is a conflict in the different versions of the code in the Git, then uh, chances are that same type of conflict can show up in uh, your event-sourced application 
which has multiple clients that happen to talk uh, to the server either concurrently or with certain delays, or there are some network outages possible. And fourth type of the value object in Git, uh, it's uh, annotated tag. That's a slightly advanced thing that normally you don't use. It's basically just a reference to any object which can be cryptographically signed. Okay. So uh, blobs, trees, commits, and annotated tags are kind of value objects in Git domain. And Git, Git itself is a collection of utilities which operate and manipulate these objects. And you can do a lot of things with that. So starting from using Git as a database and to using it for the purpose of distributed version of control and also for doing some much deeper analysis. And uh, Git as a database, for example, it's quite good because it not only has content-based addressing, which creates built-in deduplication, but it also has a rather efficient way to transfer data across the network. It has built-in differential compression, as far as I know. Okay. In addition to normal uh, uses of Git for version control, some people, especially consultant, or uh, people who manage their own projects and uh, are really interested to gain additional insight into to these projects, they use Git itself for Git bindings. For example, there are C-sharp uh, libraries which allow you to access Git interface and uh, deal with the working copy or repository. Uh, they use all that stuff to analyze history of the code. For example, using a few link expressions on top of the Git binding, which is configured towards a single uh, working copy, you can identify classes which change a lot. Or you can identify classes or files which change a lot together. And for example, there is a general concept that a file or a class when it is being introduced uh, into the system, it has quite a lot of changes within first days or maybe weeks of its lifetime. And afterwards, the amount of changes should go down. And analyze our uh, code base and find classes that don't actually change at once, but they keep on changing and changing and changing. Then potentially this class is either integration level class, which doesn't contain a lot of logic, but contains wires. Or this class is a bug hive or a result of bad coupling. I did see, seems like maybe a few months ago, someone on Twitter was, was doing those kinds of things. And it was interesting that you're talking about that they were running this kind of analysis Basically, it's almost like a, it's incorrect to call it a big data problem, but that kind of, you have this source code repository of changes in history that you maybe never considered to look at that as a source of information. And by applying these link queries and analysis to it, suddenly you're getting answers to questions you didn't know you had and finding things like this out. Yes, and it's possible to achieve that, to retrieve this kind of information, because Git stores the entire history. And... You can imagine that if on a single version control system, which doesn't have actually quite a developed ubiquitous language, so it doesn't have a lot of different commands and events, these commands and events are purely CRUD-based, add, remove, create, update, delete, etc., etc., and you can already identify potentially fragile classes, classes that maybe should be separated or joined together, potentially bug hives, you can imagine which, what level of insight you can gain into the business data after it was captured. Mm-hmm. And for additional references, listeners might follow First Eve uh, from Belgium. Uh, he is quite advanced in domain-driven design, and he was actually the guy who was pushing forward various experiments with using Git for analysis. And also Greg Young, I think he had a presentation on 
tricks and tips used to analyze code base using Git history as well. Cool. Which, of course, is a that's analogous to exactly what we're using event streams and event stores for is that same power to illuminate business information from past history to answer questions today that may have started five years ago by storing it this way and speaking about it this way, you're able to answer those kinds of questions just like you can with the source code stuff. Yes. And so basically you capture and keep the good stuff. Maybe it will be not used later or maybe it will be used later. But uh, whenever future comes, chances are that you will not need to run around or scream because you can't get this data needed for that report. It will be there. Right. Objects within Git are blobs, which is just a chunk of data that can be identified by its SHA1 hash code. Then tree which has a list of directory which can contain uh, links to other objects. Then third core concept is commit, which basically helps us to construct an entire history of changes. Commit is just one change, which can point to previous changes. Mm-hmm. And uh, object is annotated tag, which is advanced uh, way of creating a reference to any object. And git is just a collection of utilities, which uh, help to operate and manipulate these objects. And there are higher level uh, utilities and commands like git add, git commit, git push, which are glorified higher level abstractions, which underneath the code do the manipulations with these four objects and handle transfer, handle replication, handle garbage collection, etc., etc. Okay. And given the fact that git is just a set of tools that manipulate these lower-level objects. Obviously, there are multiple workflows possible uh, around Git. Uh, There are workflows that handle, for example, with different branches, uh, with different versions, with tags. And uh, resulting Git history, Git commit tree, can look extremely complicated. It can be even more complicated than uh, Paris Metro, which is in its own way extremely complicated as well. And at Locad, while working on the projects, there are simple principles or helpers, uh, which we try to follow. And they work uh, quite nicely for us. However, they are not like absolutely helpful to everybody. Uh, the principles that I'll be talking about, they help to like, medium projects, which are not that complicated, which are changing rapidly, but have only three, five people working on a single project at most at once. And these projects are rather decoupled, meaning that a single change, it usually doesn't affect the entire project. It usually can be broken down into one file or two files, three files. Usually, I think we most of our changes is two, three files at most. Hmm. Okay. Obviously, there are sometimes resharper refactorings, which change uh, 10 files or 20 files at once, that, like renaming or cleaning up but these are relatively rare. All right. Okay, and for more advanced listeners, basically just a few tips or tricks which we try to use and which are applied both at Locat internal projects or at open source projects, which we have starting from Locat Securus and up to data platform. First of all, and it really helps in development collaboration, is that commits should be as small and atomic as possible. So when you're trying to do the change, it helps when you limit, make your change as small as possible to the point where you can't take anything else from it. 
away from it. And as soon as you have this small single uh, change, then it helps if you commit it and if you push it to the server. This way, first, it will help everybody else to stay up to date and not to experience painful merges down the road. Second, it will help you to reduce the amount of merges as well. This is actually quite similar to building distributed systems with event sourcing. Uh, if you have multiple event stores, or maybe client event store, uh, which contains local replica of event streams and server, it would reduce the amount of pain and the amount of merging if your client event store or client uh, version of aggregate would, was pushing uh, changes and synchronizing with a server event store as frequently as possible. Mm-hmm. This way, less conflicts and higher probability that these conflicts can be resolved automatically. So commit early and often. Uh, because when you're committing, you're just sending the changes into your local event stream. And pushing, it actually forces synchronization with a global copy, with a server. Right. Then uh, that's a Git-specific recommendation. Don't use Git pool. Because Git pool, as far as I know, fetches the changes from the server into the local history. And it also tries to merge manually your own changes on top of this uh, server changes, which creates complicated graph. What we're using instead at Locat is actually rebasing. So uh, what uh, is rebasing at Git, it's basically Git takes diverging server changes and it takes your local commits and it tries to restructure these local commits, creating new commits in such a way as if they were applied on top of the server changes. So basically, if you renamed a single file or added new methods to this class, to a specific class, and if there were server changes, Git will try to roll the local history to the very latest version of server and then try to add this new method to the class at the very latest snapshot of server. That's what rebase does? So it rebases your local changes on the very latest history of the server. Okay. So if you made some changes to the code and there were some concurrent changes in the server, Git uh, updates your local code to the very latest version of server, and then tries to mimic your own changes as if they happened uh, on this very latest code. Okay. So this helps to create linear change history. Long story short, don't use pool. Please use uh, git fetch and rebase, and don't use merge. Use rebase if possible. That helps to keep the history commit history uh, plain and simple. And the argument against this approach is that you're losing the history of changes that are associated together. Because if, with merges, you can actually see how changes were going. So you can see that there was a side development uh, effort that was trying to rename this class and then add these methods to this class, and then it was merged back into the branch, into the main branch. That's a valid argument. However, uh, in my own experience, I find this kind of information pretty useless. Because I don't really currently use many of those commands other than like fetching upstream updates right now in, in our doing our homework and my exposure to Git and GitHub, the repositories we have on GitHub. I'm just using GitHub for Windows. I clone some sample code that you've created. Uh, I make my changes and maybe I put it in my own repository or something like that. So if you were just doing command line only from the very beginning, let's say that I'm a 
brand new contributor to the um, sample project and I want to go to GitHub and get it on my machine. I want to download it, um, make a change or something. Like, Give me an example of the workflow that would show the advantage of the rebase that you just said. Like, How would I do it? What are the commands I would type to do that? Okay, uh, there is one uh, important difference. Uh, when you're using, for example, GitHub, mm-hmm. most of the cases you are not given ownership and ability to push changes to this uh, core Git repository. Right. You're to fork the repository, which creates uh, your own version replica of this repository on the server. And the forking is done via the GitHub web UI. Then you will be provided URL to do Git clone in right. your uh, which will create a local uh, working copy and also the entire history of changes pointing at your worked repository on the server. Right. Then you'll be making the changes locally and then adding these changes uh, to the commit index. Index is uh, a collection of changes that happened locally, which you recorded, but they were not uh, added to the local commit history yet. So uh, by typing git add, file name or by typing git add uh, dash i, which will enter interactive mode, you can uh, pick changes in your local files which you want to be part of the next commit. After you've assembled your index of changes, you can type something like git commit and then enter the commit name and the git will take your local index and upgrade it into the commit and add it to the local repository. At that point, you have new change in the history, but this change exists only on your local repository. Then you can run git push, which will push changes to your server copy of the project. At that point, this, this is where advanced GitHub scenario kicks in. If you want these changes that you push to your local repository to be present in the master repository, for example, if you're committing to some small thing to look at SecureOS or you're committing to Linux kernel. Uh, you need to go to that uh, Git repository in the web UI and pick your changes and issue pull request. Pull request is kind of advanced GitHub workflow, which automates process and it sends the changes as email or a web notification to the owner of the master repository and says, this guy uh, made these changes in his local version and he wants these changes to be included in the master. And then the repository can review these changes, and there is automatic uh, button on the Git web UI, which says merge pull request automatically. And when owner clicks this button, it works most uh, more often than not, then these changes will be added to the master version. And then you would need to update your own version, like your own forked version to the master version, by typing something like git fetch upstream, git merge your local version to the upstream version. That's a bit, uh, that might sound a bit complicated, but we're just dealing here with event stores or with commit flows, which are stored at multiple locations at the master repository on some server, at your own forked version to which you can uh, push changes, and to your local version, which points to the forked version. Okay. And so we have three different versions of repository, each of which has different like rights for you and uh, different locations. And your workflow is work- focused around these three repositories. And 
this may sound painful, especially for the slightly painful for the local commuter, but it really helps to structure workflow uh, around large projects because it makes it extremely easy for the owners of the master repository to accept changes, to push the changes, or to work on them afterwards. But at LOCAD, are you using GitHub to be the master, or do you have your own Git server that everyone has full rights to push to? In the almost all projects, we have, for the open source, we use GitHub. Mm-hmm. For the projects, we use Codebase HQ. And almost everywhere, since we have we are small teams, project developers, they have push rights, the repository. Right. So internally, the initial scenario you were going through, the small team doesn't have to go through the process of forking and then ask for a pull request because they can just directly push from local right into the master. Yes, absolutely. Okay. With open source projects, yeah. <laughs> uh, for uh, local developers, they have push rights to their repository, but if somebody else wants to change that, the only way to do that is to fork their repository push the change to the local uh, repository, and then issue pull request. Right. And uh, if somebody really is forced to do that, wants to push a lot of changes, for example, to look at SecureS, and has been forced to do that more than three or four times, and I was accepting this uh, pull request, then I would just skip the formalities afterwards and we'll grab this person, uh, push access to their core repository as well. I see. Yeah, that makes sense. And actually, that's one of the reasons that GitHub became so popular, I think, was it made that thing that might sound a little clunky and kludgy and complex to contribute pretty painless using and the interface. I think uh, Git is painful. Then your viewpoint on this matters might change if you try, for example, CVS or TFS. Yeah. If you try to search Twitter, for example, for the combination of words TFS pain, uh, TFS agony, etc., etc., you might gain in your insight. Yes, I've seen that. <laughs> well, uh, to be fair, TFS is, uh, when you try to use it as purely for Git purposes, it will be extremely painful. However, it has its own uses and merits. When you have a really huge corporation or enterprise, where you need to enforce a lot of policies, a lot of actions to have uh, really good uh, integration with version control, with uh, issue management, with uh, build servers, and you need the thing to be more or less consistent with all across the enterprise to make sure maybe that even if you have a huge team of outsourcers uh, in some country that are not that proficient or uh, even interested in learning proper development principles, if you try to do that with Git, it would be quite painful. With TFS, it's so limiting that it's much harder to mess up. Back to the old, you know, right tool for the job. And they have this whole ALM story. And I know that recently they're trying to make a bunch of different changes and strides to address some of those limitations and play nice with Git and, and all this interop and stuff like that. So I know they have changes going on, but I would say in general for the small development team or open source kind of things, it's TFS probably isn't the tool for the job, but you know, with existing experience, large enterprises with different kinds of issues with hundreds of developers, thousands of developers, and all that kind of stuff you mentioned, uh, I could see where it has its merits. So it's just sort of, again, use the right tool for the job. Yes, absolutely. And, well, a few more hints with, about Git. First of all, it's a really good practice to put readmes into folder of projects to explain purpose of the project, why is it, is it there. Even just a few lines would be uh, quite a helpful uh, because 
this the same project will be probably accessed by other people down the road. And having this kind of high-level overview, even if it seems to be extremely simple, it will immensely help people. Uh, the second recommendation when you start a new Git repository, it's uh, recommended to add common Git ignores and Git attribute files, even for the sake of excluding common transient artifacts like compiled DLLs, compiled portable debug files, user-specific files, etc., etc. This way, uh, you will avoid the mistake of checking in changes or committing and pushing changes that are actually applicable only to your code and will mess up everybody else. Uh, if you're, for example, using uh, C-sharp and Visual Studio, then you can copy gitignores file from any of Lookat projects. Mm-hmm. There's like separate repos all over the place of people that have, you know, giant gitignore files that includes this for Max, excludes this for Visual Studio, excludes this for that and the other. And I guess the the downside of the kitchen sink approach, throwing everything in there, is some of those, for example, exclude the exe files. And in the case of your DSL tool, you, if you excluded the exe files, then the tool that you wanted to put in our samples repo wouldn't make it, right? Well, uh, the exclude file, it uh, excludes the files from the being watched by Git by default. But you can still manually add the exe or DLL to the Git commit. Okay, so globally, you can sort of take the default of, I don't want all this extra junk, and then there's command lines that let you put one specific XE in there. Yes, so okay. basically, ignores makes uh, git ignore changes or addition of specific files so that they will not clutter your changes, mm-hmm. but still override that stuff. Gotcha. And uh, last and of this one, uh, please don't include sensitive information like passwords or credentials into git. <laughs> Simple. Once password or credential makes it into the repository, it's almost as sure as it will stay there forever. Like with event sourcing, if something happened, then it will be extremely hard to reverse the changes. Mm-hmm. With Git, it's still possible to edit a server-side repository, but if somebody pulled already a replica of the changes that made itself in, then they're pretty much permanent. Right. So general recommendation for the configurations, for example, values, either the ones which are default hard-coded or the ones that are stored in version config files, just use sensible default values, which uh, let your projects work out of the box. For example, how it happen, happens with uh, local security-based projects, we have default configurations, which use file-based event stores, file-based message queues, file-based view storage for projections, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And they point to C look at data project name. So if a new developer checks out clean solution and if he tries to run it, then look at CKRS, it will see that it's configured to use local file storage and it will start as empty system by default using the specified directory. So the idea is that your solution, which is versioned, it has to be clean, it has to be uh, more or less understandable with readable history, and it should be able to run out of the box without with minimum configuration. And this is actually the reason why, for example, we version all uh, non.NET dependencies in the libraries, and that we don't use Nugget. So... Uh, Package manager is used for managing .NET dependencies, for uh, managing DLLs, for managing PDBs, or some uh, additional stuff. 
and we're actually not using it at Locate because although package management so package management uh, for the listeners is just a way uh, to manage some dependencies, some libraries. It works really well, for example, in Linux, where you can, for example, type uh, sudo apt-get uh, mongodb or sudo apt-get redis, and the package manager tool will uh, go for the central repository, pull the redis package, which is a database, and also pull all the dependent packages like uh, C++ compiler maybe, uh, Perl, whatever is needed, all the build utilities. It will install everything nicely, compile, and run right this way. And what they tried to uh, import this also experience from Ruby, where it had gems into .NET experience. Uh, and in .NET world, this uh, package manager is called Nugget, and obviously packages are called Nuggets. But the problem in .NET is that there is no culture of actually making these packages small and atomic. And for instance, if you're trying just to take maybe an unit test framework, core test framework library, or some container, not only you will get this uh, core uh, testing library, you will get it for multiple platforms, for Silverlight, for .NET 4, for .NET 3.5, you will get the graphical user interface runner, etc., etc. And a lot of projects, at least the projects that I'm uh, using on a frequent basis, I've tried pulling required dependencies, and these dependencies were bringing along so much unneeded stuff that it was painful to use. However, when you're starting a new project and you want to have a quick prototype and this prototype is throw away, then it's using Nugget is really helpful. So you don't use NuGet mainly because of the tendency for the package builders to lump the kitchen sink in instead of having very granular things? Is that really the only reason you're not doing it a lot in production? Or was there another reason you mentioned before? Uh, clutters. Uh, it also, basically one of the ideas was that if you use Nugget, you don't need to keep uh, the binary references in your Git repository. You can check out or clone working copy and then run Nugget update or something like this, and it will pull the changes to your code. Right. The necessary dependencies. Uh, however, then imagine the scenario where you pull to the repository and you don't have internet connection. Imagine the scenario when you need to set up build server, which will uh, continuously run builds, tests, and uh, verifications. Imagine a scenario, I don't know. Basically, uh, Nugget, it speeds up initial development. But then it adds a lot of complications, which I personally don't like. Was the benefit for you guys just not there to set up your own sort of blessed internal server that didn't have all the garbage and was always available locally on your local network so that you weren't relying on the public so that you could control the versions that you're actually pulling in your builds and all that? Was it just you don't have that many external dependencies so it was, wasn't worth it? Because I think that's what most people would do to solve that kind of problem is spin up their own NuGet server. Well, uh, setting up a separate Nugget server is also possible, but that's one more addition, uh, additional dependency to manage. That's one additional server to have a headache about, and that's one additional complexity. Since I'm too stupid, uh, I'm almost, well, I'm a zombie, and I can't handle anything that is not essential. So, sorry, no Nugget. <laughs> so what that means then is when your teams need to use, because I... 
I don't. It doesn't seem like in your open source stuff that you have a ton of external dependencies. It's like maybe Protobuf, maybe JSON.NET or something. I, I don't know what NuGet may. I'm not NuGet. Uh, NUnit maybe. What are the typical dependencies that you have, and is it? And how do you do that without a package manager? Uh, same way. It's basically every solution has a library folder. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are folders for each dependency, okay. and I at my our biggest project and it has probably like 12 dependencies oh, so okay. azure uh, storage and service runtime monocecil for, for self introspection of the code .net openauth .net zip excel uh, look at forecasting client mysql libraries and unit oracle libraries which are like 40 uh, 40 megabytes postgresql libraries protobuf service stack sharp break sharp ziplib so when you if you're manually doing that, you guys do check that library folder into Git, and so if you update it, it updates the repo, or you do not check it in. Check it. Okay, so that's how you deal with the change management. Is if Renat decides that he wants a newer version of Protobuf, you update that folder, and everyone gets the updated copy from Git. Thank you. Yes, absolutely. Okay, so that's pretty easy. And once again, that makes the solution uh, atomic, independent, and if some new developer uh, has to work on that and he doesn't have access or he wasn't granted access to the local uh, internet connection or he's working in Ufa while the Nugget server is located within in- intranet in Paris, he'll be able to do that. Yeah, and, and the only trade-off there is potentially the, the repo size growing fairly much larger than it needs to, but it sounds like it's not a huge burden on storage space, which is not a big deal these days, and bandwidth. I could see maybe that being a problem if you had maybe 80 dependencies and it was two gigabytes or something, but it's probably more like 12 to 20 dependencies under hundred megabytes or something like that. Yes. And also if I have a situation where I have a project, which is two gigabytes with dependencies, then probably that would indicate the issue or problem with how I structure my own projects because the projects should be focused. They ideally target one or two subdomains at most and they're atomic, they're relatively independent, they're lightweight, and they're as stupid as possible. Right. So basically, by doing our design, hopefully properly, and having those bounded contexts sort of in their own universe, that also mitigates some of the the downsides of having a library folder that grows out of control because you're you're keeping that to itself. Do you have each specific project or solution that has its own library? So is it possible that as you merge bounded contexts, you have... 15 copies of protobuf all over the place or how does that look when you start doing that bigger we don't do merges of uh, separate uh, subdomains that often simply because we're working partially in greenfield environment and when we're setting up like when we're defining the subdomains when we identify the subdomains uh, and we implement them they will stay their boundaries will stay intact for quite some long time and so merging is not a problem and if ever there is a problem with libraries of merging multiple projects into one, then I will gladly take the pain. I will gladly take the risk of manually merging these projects as opposed to everyday pain of uh, dealing with Nugget and external server dependencies and build servers, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah, that makes sense. Because by keeping each maybe bounded context, if you will, or solution file or team with their own library that allows them to independently decide if they need to that we don't like this version for whatever because it causes our code problems so we we don't want to upgrade to the latest protobuf or json.net or whatever 
because X, Y, Z, but the other bounded context, which we treat separately in its own boundary has no problems with it. And that team likes this tool. So as long as we keep our external contracts consistent and our messages interoperable, you don't really need to care what's in their library folder. <laughs> so Certainly, actually telling the story of, of the pain we used to have at Locad with a uh, binary dependency help. We had quite a set of projects that were depending on other internal projects. For example, we used to have look at shared libraries, which were embedding uh, and Hibernate and, and some artifact integration and some other cool and clever stuff, which I thought to be outstanding, but in fact was overcomplicated help. And then there was uh, look at cloud, maybe look at cloud, no, at least look at SecureS that was referencing uh, look at shared libraries and also because of that was referencing Protobuf, and then there was some internal project that needed an upgrade of Protobuf because there was an issue of Protobuf serializing maybe some uh, specific type of value. And then it was extremely painful to upgrade it because we had to rebuild and recompile an entire chain of dependencies. Mm -hmm. So uh, the lesson we've learned is that when you have multiple projects and multiple people working on these projects, unless you want to get really burned badly DLLs and dependencies, you would have your projects as focused, as decoupled, as atomic as possible, and obviously as simple as possible. Because complex things, they might shave you a few inches in the short term, but they will hurt you badly in the long run. I agree. That's been my experience as well. And I, I think the preference would be to have these independent silos, if you will, being able to innovate and evolve as they need to or not. And then focusing on, and this is you know some future discussion, I'd love to get into that, on when those silos do need to interoperate, maybe share messages or be able to translate message types from my bounded context to another and versioning and all that integration problem. That'll be an interesting topic to get into. Just let the teams innovate and evolve alone, but sometimes those separate bounded contexts need to talk to each other productively, and there might be many of them. And how do you manage that uh, complexity so that you sort of get the best of both worlds? Well, actually, short answer to that, uh, how to make multiple bounded contexts interoperate, it's already in the DSL tool. Mm -hmm. First, if your core interface contracts are compatible, then you can either copy contracts library, because a contracts library, as we do it in Locat SecureS or uh, as we were mentioning about being the worst samples, it's a standalone library that doesn't reference any other dependencies except for the net. So it can be copied. Then, if that, this doesn't work, you can copy and paste messages file. Because DDD tool puts all the message contracts from a single source DDD file into a single CS file. So you just copy and paste. The messages.dd. Yes. Well, Paste messages that CS file from uh, one bounded context to another bounded context, and that's how you serialize the messages from that from the distant bounded context. That's how the other bounded context understands that messages. And then you would just need to make sure that there's no like overlap. I guess you know if you would want to avoid having two bounded contexts independently making their own factory domain and making similar factory messages. I guess it might be possible that each bounded context will have its own. Well, chances are the thing that they call factory. Mm -hmm. However, even if they declare, remember at the, uh, in the DSL tool, we had two confusing uh, keywords. So namespace, 
make sure that we differentiate our code, our uh, messages, our language in the code. So they'll be Yeah, I forgot that we had namespaces and extern there so that you could have 10 bounding contexts all doing their own factory as long as they have their own unique namespace and extern keywords, it doesn't matter. And ex- uh, extern keyword, it's basically a prefix that lets industrialization code to distinguish between uh, two factory classes. Mm-hmm. Well, so, and because the messages.ddd file or any anything in that syntax basically becomes the official interop standard language to make these bounded contexts be able to handle messages from other bounded contexts, you probably don't need to do this now, but I can see where you might want to almost independently version control that so everyone has the latest language or versioning. I guess I don't even know how that would work, but the versioning of that and keeping everyone on the same page so that I know that Next week, when Renat's bounded context releases a new set of messages, that I could be contract compatible in a reasonable amount of time to consume those messages if I need them. I don't. Okay. I don't yeah. This problem is partially solved by the approach already as well, for two reasons. First, our commands and events they are pretty much immutable. Like like command factory commands, factory events, they can evolve quite much while you develop the domain, where you uh, run the modeling. Mm-hmm. are that by the to- point you hit production, by the point you hit uh, first release, your domain will be stable. And events which go into the event store and uh, will face versioning issues there as well, or commands which fly around, events which fly around, chances are they will not change much. If they change, then the general approach would be to only add fields or method, uh, or members or to introduce completely new events and commands. And as long as you add members or maybe rename members and as long as you use uh, Google Protobuf, which is the recommended approach of serialization, then you will not have any issues because Protobuf care about renaming members. Got it. So it's the same thing as interfaces. It's It's interfaces. It's Make it additive. Don't take things away. It'll remain backwards compatible, but new clients aware of the new interfaces can take advantage of it, and it'll be backwards compatible. Life is great. Yes. <laughs> so. so proper interoperation between subdomains uh, via messages, as long as you use uh, really domain-aware messages, events and commands, as long as you use ubiquitous language, it will be pretty much uh, painless. Obviously, there are multiple scenarios where you need to interoperate not only within your code, but with other systems. And when the other systems are not as friendly or uh, careful, and then you would need to employ other, like something similar to anti-corruption layer or uh, introduce shared kernel to make sure that everybody is speaking the same language. But that's slightly more advanced topic. Uh, for the cases where you have multiple teams and multiple silos and they need to evolve and somehow uh, survive together without killing everybody else. <laughs> I see. Well, we're we're running a little long on this episode as usual. Uh, so I would say, were there any other tips or things you want to say about Git before I ask for sort of a summary for maybe the listener that's listened to all this and Yes, sounds interesting, but I still don't know what to do to contribute. I'd like to make sure we have all your points covered and then summarize. Uh, if you've never heard of Git, if you've never used distributed version control systems or any version control, and you want to plug right into getting to our samples, I have my opinion on what I would do if I was on Windows, and I'd, I'd love to get yours uh, to get people up to speed quickly. 
Actually, uh, there was a term mentioned earlier, big data. And uh, chances are, and chances are above 80% probability, that we'll be talking quite a bit about big data in the future with regards to event sourcing, with regards to domain-driven design and helping different companies because that's one of the new projects of Locat. That'd be awesome. And uh, it will be cool, definitely. And, uh, one thing I want to clarify, so big data, it's quite a hype these days. There is a lot of buzz and uh, people and companies, like they used to use cloud in every single uh, product description just yeah. because it's cool. Yeah. Uh, you hear more of big data, big data, big data. Right. Long story short, term big data is not that actually cool or it's rather boring. Big data shows up when you have an amount of data that is so huge that it doesn't fit on a single machine and it can't be processed on a single machine uh, conveniently within the required amount of time with, uh, given the available resources. However, this happens only if you use some generic approach. As we've discovered that by actually trying to look closer at the data, look uh, closer to how to deal with that big data problem is actually more often than not, it's not a big data. It's usual data that happens to be big when used inefficiently. <laughs> and heck, if you load uh, 1 million or 1 billion of rows into a SQL server, it will start behaving like it's big data server taking hours or days to compute uh, SQL queries, especially if the SQL queries contain a join between uh, 126 tables. However, if you uh, do slightly more performance optimizations and you are more aware of what you're doing, the same operations probably can be computed on a smartphone or a single laptop. And what we'll be talking about and what we're actually talking about with regards to event sourcing, aggregates with event sourcing and projections actually contains the prerequisites to doing this kind of quote-unquote big data. Yes. And just to provide an early teaser, Locat is currently working on data platform, a sample project, which is just a simplified event store targeting scenarios of uh, gigabytes of data. And what we're using Stack Overflow Data Dump as a benchmark tool and, and Stack Overflow data dumps, they start with uh, 100 megabytes and they go gigabytes large. And on commodity hardware, on usual development machine, we'll just use data platform, which is just an event store, extremely simple one, to uh, import this data dump into an event stream and then uh, calculate projections and keep these projections up to date. And projection is, as we've learned from aggregates, it's a representation of event stream in a different form. Mm-hmm. And so queries against gigabytes of data, they're actually quite fast to compute and quite fast to keep updated. Well, because you're issuing the queries against the projections, right? Well, either we're issuing dead simple queries against the projections or the projected view already contains the direct query result. Meaning that you've already anticipated the most common questions and that the ongoing regeneration of that projection has the answer waiting for you. Yes. Okay, cool. Okay, so uh, long story short, the homework for the sample would be to fork being the worst samples uh, in your, well, first uh, create a GitHub account if you don't have it. And one additional advantage of that, having that GitHub account if you're an aspiring developer is that your GitHub commit history will serve pretty much as an outstanding and the best resume. And you could use that newly created GitHub account 
to fork uh, other Locat Securus or being the worst samples. Or you can use that new, uh, and maybe do homework in your own language or look at the samples and find some missing comments that need, uh, or some code that is confusing and needs clarification. And hey, you can submit a commit to your own repository that issue pull request to us, and that would be awesome. Or uh, alternatively, you can uh, port being the worst samples, especially one of uh, the latest uh, code of carry on uh, aggregates with event sourcing uh, into your own framework or language and we'll uh, bring that repository, if you wish, into the core uh, being the worst account so that multiple people uh, all around the world can benefit from this code. And that's what Git is actually for. It's a really social tool for uh, doing changes, for collaborating on development, and for sharing this development between other people as well. Yep, and I would say that, in my opinion, if you're listening and you're brand new to Git, a lot of this didn't make any sense, but you'd like to start contributing. Let's say you you know JavaScript really well. You, you're going to try out the new TypeScript language, and you also want to learn aggregates with event sourcing and DDD, CKRS stuff that you've been hearing about on the show. I would say if you want to factor out the source control stuff right now, you don't want to worry about that yet. You just want to start contributing your code to these samples. The easiest thing, in my opinion, is go to GitHub install the their native GUI client for whatever if you have a Mac or you have a, you know they have GitHub for Mac they have GitHub for Windows GitHub for Windows you hit install it has its own copy of git self-contained so you can still move on to advanced land if you want to install msyskit or your own separate bash shell and all that stuff it's all self-contained it updates itself that's the probably the easiest thing to do to get started for a simple thing you don't need to know anything about what Renat was talking about you don't need to understand what pull is and add dash I and all that stuff. You're going to want to eventually, but just to simply download our samples, you can use the GUI. And even if you don't want to uh, contribute to being the worst, I still recommend to check out Git if you haven't already, uh, play with the samples or any other source code, uh, simply because learning Git, uh, mastering it, will make you a little bit better developer. Totally agree. Yep. And it's really not that bad. There's there's only a few commands that I, I think you're going to end up using on a regular basis. And as long as you're using the common workflows with your team, you don't often need to know all those other gory details. It's only when you make a mistake or you need to do something unique, you have to whip out the search engine and figure out the one command that you'll probably forget next day. So, Okay, Renat, well, we've covered sort of a little bit of an introduction to source control, distrib- distributed version control systems uh, with the focus on Git today, how it has some uh, uh, similar concepts to event sourcing and the stuff that we're working on and learning currently, and some of the development practices that your smaller teams use uh, that people might want to take advantage of and some of the practices that that you'd like us to follow if we're going to contribute to at least LOCAD's stuff. Was there anything else you want to say? Or are we good on this topic today? Well, as obviously, uh, there is one thing to say. I'm terribly sorry for not fitting within the expected time box of uh, 20 minutes. <laughs> I think we went over one hour here. So sorry about that. We'll try to improve later. No, we won't. <laughs> I'm going to say, we, yes, I think we'll continually try to strive for 20 minutes. But uh, I also have a history of our episodes. And something tells me we're going to continue to either, if the topic warrants or the tangent warrants it, we're going to ramble on and on, and I'll try to edit it so we keep it under an hour. But I think it's official. We give Renat permission to stop apologizing after every episode when it goes over 20 minutes, because I think we're always going to go over 20 minutes. 
So it's can, okay, Renan. It's okay. Give me at least 10 more episodes to get used to that. Exactly. Okay. I'll, I'll try to let you do that. But anyway, um, guys, we are on Twitter at being the worst. We mentioned on this episode, we're obviously on GitHub. Our account is being the worst. Pretty straightforward. We've got links in the about page. So check out our about page on being the worst.com if you want more info on. Uh, how do you look at our Trello board and all the all the contact information? Uh, I guess we've never really mentioned. If you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm at KC Street, and Renat is at Abdulin A B D U L L I N. So that's how you can find us. But the plan is, guys, is that we have uh, some episodes in the backlog to finish up and keep asking those questions on the website. There's a few of the conversations going on. I'll ask Renat to check out some of the recent comments because I know. Uh, Jason and Kim and some others have made some comments on there, and I took my best guess at that, but we haven't covered those yet, and it might be a few weeks before we can get into those. So, Renat, if you get bored, check out the website and uh, answer some of those comments, please, because I told the guys that uh, I would ask you to do that. <laughs> so, all right, well, that'll do it for us. Until next time, Renat, uh, have a good evening. I'll talk to you later. Bye, guys. See you. And cut.